Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you will learn how to grow your business steadily without ads and especially when nobody cares about you. So my guest today is the founder of the social proof marketing company FOMO. We have 13 employees so far and they recently launched an ad network actually, which just reached 1 million impressions. What's interesting about my guest today is that he has a very, very similar vision uh, than, uh, than this podcast, uh, which is to, to give back uh, marketing its good name. Uh, he's also an investor in bootstrap startups. And I'm not going to lie, uh, today's guest is quite a character and not your typical Silicon Valley founder. Uh, he lives in New York City to start with. He starts every single sentence with a lowercase, which drives me absolutely insane. <laughs> he does not reply to emails unless you donate to a charity. He doesn't use LinkedIn or Facebook. And finally, he openly shares his uh, political views uh, for everyone to see. Mm. So, Ryan Culp, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, let's see what you've got. Thank you for having me, Louis. Appreciate it. Did you like the intro? Was it okay? That was, wow, fantastic. I, I like knowing that it drives you crazy to write in lowercase. I think now yeah. I try to write in like small caps lowercase <laughs> to make it even worse. That, that's exactly what I was expecting of you because I know you do it for a reason. And I know many grammar nads here are probably like emailing you every day to say, why the fuck are you doing this to me? <laughs> yeah, they do. Well, what people want to understand, you know, how are you breaking, why are you breaking these rules, these societal rules, these they're actually all arbitrary rules, but uh, people forget that um, qualifier about them. And they say, well, how can you do this if you do that, right? How can you create, how can you grow a startup if you don't pay for advertising? How can you hire team members if you don't raise venture funding? How can you get customers if you don't use shady influence tactics? How do, how, how, how do you do that without this thing? And they're, they're failing to recognize that the premise is wrong. <laughs> the premise um, is actually created by those industries, right? So the idea that a lot of us have ingrained in us as tech founders that we have to raise money, you know, if I only raise money, I could do this. That idea didn't come with us when we came out of our mother's womb. That idea has been taught to us by Silicon Valley investors, right? Similar to the idea that we should all buy a house and never rent apartments, that we're throwing away money if we rent. Look, I'm open to buying houses. One day I will buy a house, but we have to acknowledge that the premise there is funded by billions and billions of dollars of, of banks getting together and saying, hey, we ought to convince the populace that we should, that you know, people should own houses or else they're throwing their money away. So this, this phrase we hear ourselves say out loud, and many of these phrases, they've just been kind of programmed into us. Oh, you're not buying, you're throwing money away. Well, that sentence was given to us, was delegated to us by a bank, and we didn't realize it because they use shady marketing tactics to embed that sentence in us. But we do the same thing in tech. We do the same thing when we think about marketing maxims. We do the same thing when we think about how we construct sentences in our emails, right? And so one small point that I make daily with anyone I speak with, as you brought up, is I write in all lowercase. I still use pronouns because I want to demonstrate respect for people, places, landmarks, ideas, whatever. But I write everything else in lowercase because it demonstrates that this premise of sentence case is something that was taught to us in elementary school. And it doesn't actually mean anything and it doesn't actually matter. And people actually prefer to talk to other people, which means we prefer being casual, which means we prefer things like lowercase. If that's how we send text messages, why can't that be how we send contracts? I, I knew that behind this behavior was lying a very contrarian view of the world. And I've read a lot of your articles and a lot of your tweets as well to, to get a sense of who you are as a person. And it's pretty clear that you like to challenge the status quo and all of that. And that's pretty, pretty cool because I'm the same. And this is why the podcast started. So even before I ask you more about who you are, like, and why are you so such a contrarian person? Like, what made you this way uh, towards the end of this episode? Let's drill down to the, the nitty gritty. Let's drill down to the, to the actionable part that everyone wants to know because you growing steadily your business without using any ads and especially when nobody gives a shit about what you, who you are and, and, and you in particular, like, how do you do that? And that's a problem that a lot of people suffer from. So let me describe the situation here, right? Mm. So. You, Ryan, you have all the knowledge that you've, that you've uh, accumulated through the years and throughout 
the multiple projects you started and, and some of them sold and acquired other companies and all of that. Uh, you have FOMO in your experience that you're running right now. But let's say I challenge you to, to forget about, not forget about your knowledge, but forget about you as a person and your credibility and starting from scratch when it comes to you. Um, so let's imagine that you have no credibility, that nobody knows you and nobody cares. Let's also imagine that I give you six months to challenge you to use the knowledge you have and to grow a business from zero to a business with a decent revenue, uh, something that we can, we can, we can uh, define that together, uh, what we mean by decent revenue. But trying within six months time frame to grow this business without using your, your network, without using your, your credibility and starting from really from scratch. And to add to that, the last part of the challenge is to do this with $1,000 or less. Right now, that's a big premise. And maybe, maybe you'll say, no, I, I can't do that or whatnot, but let's see what you've got. So if I give you this challenge, six months, $1,000 without using your name, how would you go about creating a business without these ads uh, and starting to generate revenue? What would be step number one? Sure. Well, I actually kind of like when you say that there's a budget constraint. I think it starts there because I think ultimately when someone says, hey, you need to do this or you need to do that, let's say like the show, The Apprentice or something, and you only have $100 to spend, what they're really saying is you have no money to spend, right? Because what's mm -hmm. the difference between $100 and 1000 What's the difference between zero and 1000 If you have six months, the largest resource you're putting forth there is your time, your know-how, your resourcefulness, really Google. <laughs> Google spreadsheets and documents are going to be the, the output and hopefully some users and revenue from six months of work. So let's just say I don't even have a thousand dollars budget, right? So that means I'm not going to do any advertisements. My process, and this is if I had to change my name and I had no network and all the things that you mentioned, those constraints, my process is very simple. It's who is your customer and where is your customer? And the way I derive there is I look at the product that I have that moment to sell. The product incorporates not only let's say it's a SaaS app, not only the actual product, the thing you log into, but also the level of service, the pricing, the expectations, the downtime, the uptime, the knowledge base, all of the support, all of the, um, the, the entire ecosystem surrounding that product. And so you look at what you have today to sell and you figure out not your ICP, which is your ideal customer profile, and that's a lie. Everyone's ICP is the same. Everyone's ICP is Google, right? Because Google has unlimited money, they pay on time, they book in advance, they never bother you. Everyone's ICP is the same. So ICPs don't exist. What I instead think about is our RCP, the realistic customer profile. And that's the person or the entity or the business that I can sell to today with my current product, not the company that might start a free trial next week or next month or after this one feature is done or ready or after we do a big pricing discount. Who would look at my product today and say, this is a no-brainer? That is my RCP. And my RCP can change every single day. That's fine. And so once I've identified my RCP, that's who is my customer, I then ask, where is my customer? And specifically, where do they hang out online? So if we're in the context of a tech business, where do they hang out online? If you had asked me if the prompt was, hey, you walk into a, a struggling bakery in South Carolina in a small town with a population of 15,000 people, how do you help them grow in six months? Well, then it would be, where do my potential customers hang out physically in person? Are they at cafes, right? Something like that. But supposing we're still in the tech context. Um, it starts with figuring out where they hang out online. And then I go there. <laughs> I go to those mm. places. Maybe that's a forum. Maybe that's Reddit. Maybe they're reading blogs. Maybe they are actually clicking ads. Maybe they're on Facebook and Facebook groups. Wherever the customer is, I go there. I get to know them. I talk to them. You know, as Gary Vee says, right? Add value, add value, add value, then ask for their business. And I've done this for years. So it doesn't matter if People kind of know, some people might know Ryan Culp or might acknowledge FOMO or might have heard of some of these things. That process is the same. And as you grow your network and as you do these things, you actually just develop a gut feeling for who the customer is and you develop a gut feeling for where the customer is, but the process doesn't change. And so I think if I were to take everything I know now and throw it in the trash, what you ultimately then do as a marketer, as an entrepreneur, is you go full circle in that process. When you're just getting started, you say, look, I know nothing. I assume nothing, I know nothing. So you read books by Eric Rise and you look at blog posts that say, test everything, you know, lean startup, do customer development surveys, launch an MVP without any code, do a landing page, take money before you build a product. These are all really common pieces of advice, but they only really are useful. They're only really necessary if you know nothing or if you're coming from the perspective that you want to 
that you want to know or assume nothing. But then you start to get a gut feeling about things. Then you start to figure out, well, you know, I can kind of look at this business, spend 10 minutes doing either keyword research or searching around for competitors or whatever. And suddenly now you can size up. You know what? I don't think I'm going to be able to grow this with ads because the PPC is 50 bucks. You know what? I don't think I'm going to be able to grow this with content because I use XYZ tools and all the top ranking posts have a domain authority that would take me two years to achieve, right? So you start to size things up and figure things out and then you get a head start. So every venture gives you some lessons so that that next venture, you can go from zero to something faster. But ultimately what happens is in this prompt we're going through now where I have six months to grow something from scratch and I don't get to use any of my tools. What I'd ultimately do is implement the ultimate wisdom, which is uh, back to, I know nothing, right? So if Mm -hmm. I were, uh, let's say to one day exit FOMO and these other projects I'm working on and start a brand new project, I would have the option then to either say, well, I've spent years developing my gut and I can, and and gut is sort of like insight, but some people call it bias. So I, I tweeted the other day, I'm trying to understand what's the difference between bias and insight. And nobody has an answer yet. So maybe if someone wants to chime in, I'll, I'll probably retweet that. Uh, but when you when you decide that you, when you acknowledge that you have um, kind of an, an idea of what works and why, you can then decide consciously to reject that and start over from scratch with customer right. development surveys, with landing pages, with prepaid accounts before you build technology, with you know wireframes that you just send to people as attachments instead of even building a landing page. So it all kind of comes full circle. So who is the customer? I'd figure that out by understanding the product. If marketers don't understand the product, then what are they marketing, right? So anyone, anyone can sell anything once. That's the other piece here. So how would I grow something? Well, it depends the nature of the, of the thing I'm growing's business model. If it's an info product, then I could use suave and charm and influence tactics and scarcity and urgency because anyone can sell anything once. And that's why there's a lot of really scummy marketers selling info products. It's not because info products are bad. It's because info products, by the nature of their business model, one-time, very large ticket item sales, they attract people whose skill sets are suave, charm, scarcity, and then they'd bounce and then they disappear. They attract people who only want to work one day a week. They attract people who only want to work really hard for two weeks every quarter, right? So the business model attracts the the scumminess. It's kind of like skateboarding, right? Skateboarding's great, but skateboarding has a culture of being a punk ass and skateboarding has a culture of being anti-authoritarian and dropping out of high school and getting tattoos and you know, maybe cracking your head open. Those are separate, but they're sort of symptoms. They're part of the skateboarding culture. So there's something similar going on with business. And when you're in SaaS, to me, that's the most honest business model. On one hand, consumers could say they don't like paying every month. You know, I want to pay one time. But on the other hand, <laughs> consumers can stop paying you if you stop delivering on the promise. And marketing is all about following through on the promise of the product that you, you shared with someone. And so in SaaS, you don't get to just sell something once. If we sold FOMO to thousands of people every month once, we wouldn't have a business. It only works because we follow through on that promise. So it keeps us honest. So business models, in a way, also dictate how you grow something and what what strategies you use without your network, without even um, looking at the product in detail. Just thinking about the business model makes an impact there. So how would I go about doing it? Maybe more specifically, um, I think I might need a prompt for the type of business, right? right. Because so let, let me stop you there because you, you, you shared so many things uh, that are very interesting that uh, I feel the need to, to deconstruct it a bit and, and go back. So let's say exactly as you said. So let's agree that we are not going to talk about the making of the product today together because that's not really the point of, of this episode. But instead, let's assume that we do have some sort of a product that is like in version 0.1 and it's, let's say, a subscription business, right? Maybe we can come up with one right now that is just... You know, so you mentioned, what did you mention? You mentioned ad network, you mentioned, uh, so you do is FOMO. What, what rough idea would you like to pick right now? Just to, so that we have an idea, we can like start to say, how do we sell it? What about um, milk delivery to your home? All right. So milk delivery, but you pay online though. Sure. All right. And it's kind of a tech company in a sense, because then you can very much like SaaS, you pay every month and you get milk delivered to your door every day. Mm-hmm. Sure. And and you need to keep delivering value so that this person keeps paying and gets its milk delivered every day. Totally. So Instacart for milk. Right. <laughs> Instacart minus the vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
right. So let's start with that. So then you you mentioned this this ideal customer profile and this real like this realistic kind of customer profile. So there's one thing that you mentioned. If I had to summarize, if I had to select something that I think people would really like to get to know more, to understand more, is this concept of guts. And I think this this challenge that I that I that I started with you is not about forgetting what you know. It's just forgetting your name in a sense that you don't you can't use it to just sell easily because you already have a huge mm-hmm. network. But Indeed, you can and you should use the knowledge and those guts that you developed throughout the year. So maybe, maybe let's try to extract those kind of those pieces of wisdom that you have that you naturally kind of go through every time you think of something new to start, and maybe we can make them explicit for everyone here to uh, to know. Yeah, sure. So you know, we actually do this exercise a lot on kind of the side of. FOMO, I also buy small companies, like you mentioned, through an entity or a fund we started called Fork Equity. And when we're looking at companies to buy, we have all of these constraints going into it. So before we look at the code, before it's kind of our problem to grow it, we go, well, you know, I only have a few hours a week I could dedicate to a new project. And that's the lens we now look at those projects with. Is that the most ideal way to evaluate possible acquisitions? Maybe not, but it's it works for us, right? So for example, if we come across a business, we figure out how many signups do you get per day? Where do those signups come from? If the source of those signups is one channel versus another, that alone could be a deal breaker for whether we buy the company. So some of our businesses and most of our um, side project businesses, we rely on inbound traffic. It's evergreen. It doesn't require daily maintenance. And it actually kind of compounds over time. Whereas there's a lot of marketing channels that have the opposite effect as compound interest. You actually have to work harder over time to get the same results. I think one good example of that would be something like Facebook ads, right? As you exhaust an audience and as you see in your Facebook ad campaign portal that your frequency is above three or seven or whatever heuristic marketers are sticking to these days, now suddenly you need to cycle out a new audience. You have to redo your metrics. Now you have to compare historicals and say, you know what, should we just keep hitting our old audience or should we really go after this new market? you change your audience too much, now you need to go to your website and change your messaging so that the handshake from those new ads to the new art, you know, new audience um, resonates with them. It's kind of a mess. Um, and whereas if you have an inbound kind of um, primary source of traffic or source of clients, then you can do things a little bit differently. And maybe you can focus on building the product or outsourcing product development and just focus on very high level, you know, where do I show up in Google? And so the knowledge you have allows you to look on a per channel basis, compare that to your bandwidth, compare that to your interests and your competence. And now you have this matrix where with a document, with a pen and pad, you can kind of go through um, multiple scenarios before you buy a business, before you join a company, before you start a company, and you can kind of already model out um, how the growth may may develop. And again, it's not 100% certain, but I'll put it this way. You know, a lot of marketers talk a lot about Test everything, test everything. I don't know. Test everything. Agreed. It's yeah, uh, cool, but you know, you could save a lot of time if you um, have a little bit of conviction. Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm struggling to understand the concept of this book. It talks about all those channels that you need to test one by one. Like growth hacking, like the growth hacking book talks about it. There's also this, uh, I'm going to forget the name, but there's this book that goes through basically 19 or 17 channels you can go through as a company. Traction, exactly. And I always struggle with that for the exact reason. First off, you have knowledge in just some channels that you, and you don't have that in other channels. Also, as you said, the more experience you have, the more guts you can use to say, you know what, these type of channels for the type of company you are trying to create, it's not going to work. We, we are not, we are here for the long term. We are here for the, for, yeah, for the long haul. And therefore only focusing on, you know, ads and yeah, PPC and, and social uh, social ads is not going to cut it for us and, and all of that. So can you repeat uh, for me the, the matrix that you just started to mention that you can kind of draft on a, on a piece of paper? Sure. Well, again, the process is working backwards from some goal. So if you have, um, if you have a goal at a company to achieve some certain revenue, well, the, the quick heuristic, and we talked about this before with why are we told to write lowercase, why are we told to raise venture capital, is that you should get more users. But if you pause, you realize, well, what if I could just double the price of what my current users pay? And the things that you would need to do, the behaviors that stem from that decision are going to look very different than if you decide you need more users. Right. You know, If you're a marketer and you step into a product that has a thousand clients and your boss says your job is to double our revenue, 
and you're evaluating the market and you're saying, okay, well, we're humming over here. We're capped out on our ad spend over there. We can't even hit our daily budgets. Um, our content team's already producing this. And you think, you know, go through the line, all, all the different channels and things that they're doing that got them to the thousand clients. You may decide that you just need a different product. You may decide that you need your product to charge more. You may decide you need to launch a new revenue arm. And if that's the decision you come to, then next thing you know, marketing isn't the thing that gets you to 2x revenue. And so that's where, you know, at FOMO, we've kind of tried to practice this a lot. We didn't even have a business team until a couple months ago. So we were very much an engineering culture and any quote unquote marketing we did was very casual, something like this. It was chatting with someone on a, on a podcast. It was product marketing. It was sequential drip emails, which were just driven by SQL queries, right? Not point and click in a marketing automation tool. And, um, and you know, we were able to grow without what we think of, you know, in terms of marketing. We were able to grow without having a weekly KPI dashboard standups. We didn't even have a KPI dashboard until five weeks ago. It looks pretty. I don't know if anyone <laughs> uses it. I don't know if it does anything. Um, we kind of keep growing or not growing regardless. So I'm trying to figure that out. All right. So, so these metrics, you have these, you have all of those channels, potential stuff you can do, and then you have what you're good at. And you also have this um, other element, I feel, of what do you want to do? Uh, what is the vision for the company? Like going back to this milk delivery service, you know, do you want to get acquired by massive like uh, company in the next five years? Do you want to actually rely on this business to to create a family around and to, to still be here in 30, 40, 50 years, right? So depending on the objective, then the type of things you're going to do to, to get those people in might differ, right? That's exactly right. I mean, look, I'm a, I'm a tech entrepreneur, whether I want to be or not. So if I decided I wanted to get into the milk delivery business and, you know, the one constraint we've decided is that I must charge for the, uh, the subscription online. So I'm going to build some sort of online experience, but ultimately the product is a physical product. What I'm going to realize very early on just from having experience doing stuff like this is that the bulk of the business is going to be localized logistics. It's not going to be tech. I'm going to try to apply technology to everything. So we're going to have inventory management and maybe that's really just spreadsheets for the first million dollars in sales, you know, whatever. Um, but I'm going to realize that growing it or at least maintaining it day-to-day -day operations is going to come down to localized logistics. So therefore, as a marketer, as the, as the founder responsible for growing it, I may actually invest more time in the business model itself to turn it into, let's say, a franchise. Because I might realize, you know what? Do I really want to be flying around the country to open up warehouses for local logistics? Do I really want to be filing licenses for delivery trucks and getting permits? No, right? That's not what I know. And so what I might then do with the skills I do have as a tech founder is figure out a way that I can franchise and containerize the businesses, ways that I can figure out multi-tenancies, that there's an online portal that a local franchisee logs into to order more milk. And now ultimately all I've built is an e-commerce store that sells milk by the payload, <laughs> that sells milk by the pallet instead of by the bottle. And now I've worked this business into something that's in my wheelhouse, which is just an online e-commerce store, something I know a lot about. And I'm selling 500 bottles instead of one bottle. At the very end of that customer experience is a local delivery. But because that's not my competence, I've worked the business model to my favor to figure out to get other people who have that competence to run that aspect. People struggle, I think, with this element, uh, the, simple, the simple element of understanding what your strengths are. So you seem to have a very good understanding of what you're good at, right? And what you, what you enjoy doing, what you don't. What would you say then to, to people listening and who wonder what they're actually good at, what they should focus on? How do you find that out? Hmm. You know, for me, I agree with, I don't know who said this, maybe Mark Andreessen or someone, but they said writing is thinking. And so that's why I try to write around once a week. I, I'm not nearly as prolific as a lot of people, uh, but I try to write a blog post on my personal website, in a private Google Doc, on our company website as a guest post, try to just ship something every week or so, because each time I write something, I've actually thought through something is really the benefit to me. And there's side benefits of, you know, I don't know, a new follower or something. Um, but as I started writing over the last few years, you can do a word cloud of your own content, right? So it's all kind of subconscious, but your subconscious doesn't lie to you because it, it doesn't know, it doesn't know that it's telling the truth. And so we can kind of look at our pieces that we've created, whether it is a blog post or whether it is just, you know, the side projects that you've launched. And you can look for patterns between those 
project. So you can't just do it with one point, right? Each piece, each essay, each side project you ship, each networking event you go to, these are all individual data points. But if you can synthesize each data point and find the patterns between them, you can allow that to kind of tell you, oh, my interests are X, right? So for me, I realized after a few years, I actually realized that my interests are B2B type, uh, you know, low touch SaaS products. Particularly, I like widgets. <laughs> I like mm -hmm. JavaScript snippets. But I would have never come to that conclusion a couple of years ago, two and a half years ago when I started FOMO. I just thought, oh, it's, you know, here's what the product does. But then I look back and now we own a cookie plugin and now we own, you know, we have these different products and I've had to admit to myself, oh, I'm into B2B. For years, I thought I was more into consumer tech. And for years, I thought I was more into consumer packaged goods. And it turns out, if I look backwards and connect the data points, I'm into B2B tech, low touch, right? Self-service onboarding, no demo call, lower price point, 50 to a couple hundred bucks a month. That's my interest. And once I stopped fighting that, now I'm able to double down on building, buying, delivering products that fit that framework. Right. That makes sense. And that's a very good insight. Never thought of that this way, uh, doing a work cloud of your own content. Uh, and I agree with you. It's, 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 it's insane how writing thoughts on paper uh, is, is really powerful. There's this, um, you know, 750words.com, which is this kind mm. of uh, morning pages concept where you write 750 words every morning and you put your thoughts on paper. And, and even though your thoughts are, are, are in your mind and the same thoughts are on paper, the, the, the effect is, is very different because it feels like, it feels, as you say, you, you've thought through them, you've actually digested them, and now you can move on to something else. So I would agree, definitely something that people need to do uh, if you're listening to this to start doing right now, if you're not doing that. Now, going back to the, to the first, to the challenge we mentioned. So now, let's say you have a firm understanding of your strength and what you're good at. You also uh, have an understanding of, of your objectives. So let's say it could be, you know, for this meal delivery uh, company to actually start making money. Uh, in the first place. Um, so you mentioned something interesting. You mentioned I would hang out with, uh, I would hang out in, in places that my ideal, uh, my customers, my, my actually realistic customers would, would, would hang out on uh, in. But then you also talked about understanding who those people are. And you, you, you mentioned your guts again to mention, uh, to talk about those, those, those potential customers. So maybe you can explicitly mention how when you invest in a company or when you are looking at growing yours, how do you find out those, those customers, those first people that you want to reach and, and, uh, and sell to? Sure. Well, it starts in a different way than most people figure out customer personas. Most people think about customer personas as a four-hour task and uh, there's a whiteboard, you know, and they schedule it a week or two in advance and they get all their key stakeholders, you know, hey, let, next Thursday, let's figure out our customer persona. And, you know, you're already, you're already losing if you're doing that. So customer personas or your realistic customer profile, again, it's a moving target because it's the person who calls today's product a no-brainer and your product is hopefully uh, improving and evolving all of the time. So today's RCP is probably going to be a little bit deprecated by next week, hopefully. Um, so it's a moving target, not a four-hour brainstorm exercise. And it's also because we're talking in terms of realistic profiles and not idealistic profiles, it means that we have to humble ourselves and it means we have to use breadcrumbs. Let's call them breadcrumbs. And these breadcrumbs are the behaviors of those people. So let's say I want to do milk delivery. Um, uh, yeah, in a way, anyone could assume that my ideal customer profile, or my realistic customer profile is someone who drinks a lot of milk. But if I went through that process as a brainstorm session and I instead ended the brainstorm with my ideal customer profile, it would probably look a little different. It would be you know, someone who buys 500 gallons of milk every week for the local elementary school, right? That would be my ICP. And then my behaviors or the things I would then do about it is I'd hire a business development person who has previous experience selling to EDU and governments, right? And that's, that's a wildly different next step effort than if I said, yeah, you know, one day we'd love to sell to people who buy 500 bottles, but our realistic customer profile is probably someone who buys one or two. And now I've decided that that person looks more like a new mom who shops at Whole Foods and, um, you know, she's, um, maybe isn't a big fan of nursing her kid with her own, you know, <laughs> her own product. And so she's mm -hmm. looking for an alternative. Well, now suddenly my next step behavior looks very different. Now, instead of hiring a 
maybe a, an older senior business development person who's got experience in politics and selling to governments. Now I'm hiring someone who maybe is a new mom and is in a local book club and could pitch it to 15 people next Thursday night at seven and get my first few clients by Friday. So these these efforts that I'm putting forth to grow the milk business are so different based on the assumptions I go in and really the humility that I'm willing to exhibit during that um, you know, profile curation exercise. But how do you actually go about it? Because you're, you're naturally talking about two different types and obviously we are talking about a fictional uh, example here, but do you have from experience a way to kind of nail this kind of realistic uh, customer profile uh, to the point where you are fairly comfortable with it and uh, to the point where you can um, focus your efforts to, to get those people. So in other words, when you when you are planning to acquire a company, per se, you probably have this type of discussion, right? To understand, okay, who are those actual customers that we want to get? So do you have a process to do that? Do you have a, a secret sauce even to actually go through back to this answer, to this core answer? Oh, sure. So none of this stuff, the way I've maybe described it so far is it sounds like it's in a vacuum. Like we can just decide, you know, we can just decide it's going to be a young mom versus um, an older, you know, education cafeteria buyer, but things don't happen in a vacuum. And so one way to start figuring out and drawing hints from who is your realistic customer profile is to actually look at the competition. So this is, I think, I wouldn't necessarily call it my secret sauce, but certainly a lot of marketers, a lot of entrepreneurs think it's really cool to quote unquote, ignore the competition. I don't think that's cool at all. I think it's critical to see what the competition's doing. That does not mean that I'm saying you should do what the competition's doing, but you should know what they're doing. Um, you should treat competitors like free interns, right? They're just a mm -hmm. room full of dudes. Well, maybe women, but let's be honest, mm -hmm. mostly dudes. And they have a similar vision as you, and they're trying to figure out how to grow the market demand. So, you know, what's the difference between that and a bunch of free interns? They're sitting in a room, they're thinking of, you know, how to grow this market. So I, I like paying attention to competitors. And when you pay attention to what competitors are doing, that's one part of it. And some people stop there. But when you pay attention to what competitors are not doing, I think it gets really interesting. So for example, one company that we bought, it's called Lobiloo, L-O-B-I-L-O-O.com. Nobody listening will want to use this product. So I'm not selling you, but it's an invoice generator for florists. And it was the first one to come out. It launched in 2013. It ranks page one on Google for all of our key terms. And a few competitors have come out over the last few years since then. And those competitors cost more and they do more, right? So I stepped into the business and my first thought was, well, geez, should I you know, scale the product to do all the things that competitors do to quote unquote, stay competitive or stay relevant? And after reading reviews for competitors and after getting to know some of our existing customers, I kind of realized a few things. One is that most florists are not super tech savvy. They don't want to be tech savvy, right? They don't even want to be on a computer. They want to be designing floral arrangements. They want to be working with clients. They want to be sitting in the back eating cake at a wedding that they just put on that's going really phenomenally well and they're going to get a great review from the client for. That's what they want to do. So I got into the psyche of these clients and I realized, you know what? We don't need the product to be the Salesforce florists. We don't need the product to do that much more. So instead, we invested efforts in making it a little more usable, adding a couple things that people had been canceling for, right? Because we certainly don't want to create, uh, knowingly be conscious of churn that we could solve for. And after that, now we're actually kind of pivoting or, or repositioning the messaging so that, look, Lobaloo is when you just want to save some hours every month. You don't want to waste time in the computer. You don't want to spend too much time putting together proposals. And uh, we just try to make that part really easy for you. If you want all of these other features, the CRM type of stuff, you know, you can imagine all of the different things some folks might want, um, then Lobaloo is not for you, right? And we don't really want to build that either. And so by putting our foot in the ground there, we've actually had even last week, someone canceled. They had been a longtime user. They said, you know, no hard feelings. I got to cancel. I've got to go look for maybe a, another solution. And they came back four days later and they said, actually, can you reactivate my account? You know, hopefully my information isn't deleted. I couldn't find a better alternative. Really appreciate you having me back. And so it's kind of already starting to pay off. We are, attention, we are intentionally remaining simplistic. We are intentionally remaining a little less expensive. We are intentionally remaining hands-off. But if I had approached this differently, I could have ripped all that upside down. I could have said, day one, we're going to put in live chat. Day one, we're going to double pricing. Day one, you know what I mean? 
And I mm-hmm. didn't because we listened to the market that was existing customers. And we also listened to what people were saying about our competitors. And now that is our strategy, right? It is not just doing the normal stuff where you buy a company and you try to change everything immediately. So if I have to extract one thing about what you said, which is, I think, the secret sauce that we can even expand on and go even in more detail is the fact that you can use, instead of doing a lot of customer development with, with people and, and all of that, you can use what businesses already have, like the, the, the landscape, uh, the competitors and all of that, and identify the weaknesses, the things they're not doing so well, purely by looking at publicly available information, uh, customer reviews, uh, mainly customer reviews. Uh, they could be reviews done by like, you know, bloggers and like they do this, those massive reviews of each tools. And you can start to understand, okay, there is something interesting there. There is a trend. And I guess that goes back to the guts, to the, the experience that you start to develop is that you start to have a sense for those weaknesses that those competitors have that you can leverage as a, as an advantage for yourself, right? That's exactly right. And it reminds me of something I actually heard Seth Godin say. I was in Chicago a few months ago and he spoke and I was at his keynote and he said, look, if you ask customers what they want, it's always the same. They want more for less. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so again, it goes back to what we started talking about, which is failed or, or broken premises. If we look at products, if we buy a company and it's got 10 competitors and we look them all up and we see what features they have and how much they charge for those features, it's really easy to say, yeah, let's just achieve feature parity, let's charge about the same, and let's kind of cross our fingers, right? So if 100 people are going to sign up for one of these tools a day, let's hope that we get 10 of those signups. And then if we do a bunch of you know, ads, maybe we'll get 15 of those signups. And that's most marketers, and that's okay. But if you want to try to grow 10 businesses at the same time, you have to think a little bit differently. You have to apply systems to your growth. And you have to have, I think, conviction and a point of view. And so with Loblaw, it was, hey, how can we kind of do less for less, right? I don't want to get Mm -hmm. stuck in the rat race of doing more for less because unlike some of these competitors, I don't have a full team to build features, grow them, write knowledge-based articles, sit on live chat. It's just me. (laughs) We bought Lobaloo and it's just me. I do the coding. I do the support. I answer the phone calls. I do the emails. And luckily it's not too much. It's a couple hours a week and um, we've owned it for about seven months now. So it's going okay. But if, uh, if I'd wanted to try to compete with the other folks without the same resources, well, I've just given myself a really bad kind of recipe for my lifestyle. And so by instead saying, let's do less for less instead of try to do more for less, now that's part of our growth strategy. And now we're kind of becoming that cheaper, simpler alternative to X. And you know, before there wasn't anyone serving that market. Every, every other competitor is in the same rat race. They're competing on the same premise. And give me uh, the practical way you actually identify this, this doing less for less uh, scenario. Um, so when we're talking about the competitors to, to, to this company you mentioned, um, are we talking about um, like those invoicing software for any type of businesses or is, uh, were there actually invoicing software, especially for florists? How, how did the landscape look like? Sure. So the main competitors do it for not any business, but for event planners in general and then with somewhat of a concentration on florists. And the florist use case is really unique because it's all about visuals. So a florist wants their invoice to have actual images of flowers, right? So that's very different from the average invoice where you just have a line item with a number of hours and a short description. And so when you bake, when you bake that into your product, now suddenly you need a search engine. And now you suddenly need to add metadata to an image of a flower so that you know if the flower is yellow or if it's in season in July, right? So you don't want someone to make an invoice in July and tag and include flowers in that invoice for a flower that doesn't grow until January. And so all those kind of considerations make the product really pretty linchpin for our users. And the way I started to learn specifically, how could we differentiate? Because I know nothing about flowers, right? I know how to send invoices. I've done that a lot, but that's about it. And um, I started listening through just the inbox. So email was the full interface to a lot of these insights. For example, people would email and say, I'm considering signing up. I just want to make sure there's no annual contract. And I thought that was kind of odd. You know, we don't mm-hmm. really get that question at FOMO and at my other SaaS products. So I thought that was kind of odd and I wanted to investigate. And so I Googled around, I looked at our competitors' pricing pages, and sure enough, almost all of them do an upfront annual deal. They also accompany that with an onboarding call, right? So you get some service. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the annual deal, but I just identified that that was the norm for this industry is that people pay annual licenses. 
And then I identified the reason why, <laughs> which is that people will have a wedding season, they'll do 20 weddings in three months, and then they want to shut down all other tools. They don't want to pay during their off seasons. So these other competitors have figured that out. They charge you annual. But for some florists who want the flexibility to cancel or they don't have a really big rush season, they kind of do part-time one event a month or something, they're okay to pay all year, but they want that month-to-month flexibility. So again, that was another insight kind of stacked upon another insight, um, the nature of florists and their business model and the nature of the lumpiness of their sales, coupled with the, uh, the business model of our competitors who try to combat that with annual pricing. And now we're able to just kind of fit right in the middle. I don't want to say in the middle, but fit in a a new space that we carved out for ourselves, which is no monthly contracts. Now, suddenly something as simple as what I consider a vanilla SaaS stack, right? You sign up and you pay once a month. To me, that's just like a no brainer. But evidently to florists, that is now a differentiator for us. But I only learned that through, through the inbox and through a little bit of research. And it goes back to, to the very core principle of something we talked about uh, with Seth Godin, and you mentioned uh, his name a few times, is like focusing on the tiniest audience possible so that you can deliver truly the best experience ever. And you mentioned a few qu- quick examples, but that really illustrates this concept very, very well. You, you mentioned that uh, florists want very visual invoices. Florists want like flowers on the invoices, but florists are obviously experts in flowers, and therefore you can make a huge mistake if you... Uh, add by default an image of a flower that only blossom specific time of the year or even worse that is only used in funerals or that kind of stuff right yeah. so this is when you dig into you get so specific into your tiny audience that you can offer truly something amazing for them that truly differentiates yourself from the rest and that becomes this purple cow to use what Seth Godin would, would mention as well <laughs> but it's quite interesting to hear from your perspective a real example of how that would actually work because We've talked about this concept a few times on the podcast, but I can sense that listeners, a lot of them would be scared because that's a big thing to do. You, you are a contrarian. I think you enjoy taking the you know opposite view or thought that mo- most people will have. And I can sense that you're not afraid to take risk and, and to take a stand, right? So maybe that's not a question I was planning, but like, like most of the time, I don't plan most questions. <laughs> um, how, how would you encourage people who are maybe a bit afraid of taking such a stand or taking such a risk uh, to actually do it? Yeah, great question. You know, I used to really like that. Well, I still really like him. He's kind of a magician mentalist guy in in Britain named Darren Brown and Mm -hmm. used to have his own show right on channel four. And I actually saw him live in New York a few months ago. So now he's kind of a stage performer, but he's, uh, he's gay and he didn't come out until maybe he was late twenties, early thirties. And he told this story on stage. I just saw him in Manhattan earlier this year. And he said, you know, I was so nervous for years to come out to my family and friends and the public and whatever. And then when I did, I said, hey, I'm, I'm gay. People just said, okay. <laughs> and nobody cared. And he said it was almost anticlimactic. And I think <laughs> it's the same in marketing and entrepreneurship. It's totally the same. People are, are longing to hear someone who just believes what they're saying who doesn't tremble when they speak, who has conviction and a point of view. And if you do that, the people who are you know, still working up their own courage to join you, they'll, they'll prop you up and they'll, they'll, they'll push you forward and they'll encourage you. And so if you feel kind of weak or scared, A, you can just acknowledge you know, maybe, everybody, maybe everybody does and some people are better at faking it and it's okay to, to double down on something. So for example, I got into coding a few years ago and... I spent a year or two just thinking about it before I spent a couple of years doing it because I thought that I wasn't smart enough, right? I thought, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not that smart. Or I'm not that type of smart, that flavor of smart. You know, I'm, I'm kind of creative, but I'm not, you know, good at math. Turns out I've never done more than like algebra and, and anything I've built. And I've built 35 projects. They're all live. You can check them out. So all of these things were, all these premises were wrong. And uh, then someone told me, they said, well, Ryan, all of these engineers at these companies that you enjoy, let's say, I don't know, Uber, said they're not any smarter than you. And I heard this, I remember the specific person who said this, I don't want to call him out, but I remember the person, I remember the place, I was in San Francisco at a breakfast place called The Grove. And I remember the moment he said that. And uh, shortly thereafter, I started taking coding classes. And now that's how I spend half of my time. And so to someone who's listening and they're afraid, 
just kind of realize that your fear itself is fake news and it's um it's resting on top of a false premise you know it's not true and if you think it's true then someone in your life has probably been feeding you those bad ideas and you should extract them from your life so your bigger problem is getting rid of the poison from your life it's not you know figuring out how to how to get things done how to learn new skills and how to achieve more I think the name of your next blog title should be Fear is Fake News. <laughs> okay. I challenge you to do it. If you don't do it, I'll be very disappointed. <laughs> but that's a great answer. And and it's the same for me. It's funny when I started a podcast, I never really had, um, I feel, feel I'm quite the same than you in a sense that I like to take contrarian opinions. I like to take a stand. I'm not afraid of it, but because it's an addictive thing, when you start doing it, you realize, as you said, that it's like coming out, it's like all of that, all of that usually Hopefully, if you come out to people who understand you and love you, it's going to be very anticlimactic. And it's a bit the same when you, we take a stand, like everyone has marketers. It's funny how people mm. con connect with that. I yet I have yet received one email that actually insulted me or said, you know, this is bullshit. Your podcast is bullshit. I actually have not received one. And I was expecting to receive one. I, I get a few emails saying you should stop cursing and all of that, but nothing related to the concept or the, the core idea. So it goes to show you that it's all in your head. And as you said, fear is, fear is fake news. Um, <laughs> um, right. So going back to the premise of the first question I asked you and maybe trying to wrap it up, um, do you feel there is anything else as part of your experience that you've built, like creating so many projects and maintaining them at the same time and, and all of this insane experience you've built, anything, any secret sauce, any, any, any gut type of check that you do regularly when you want to create a new business or start a new one that, that you would do naturally? Well, you know, when you go to the gym and you're on your second set, let's say you do a typical three sets of 10 reps of something, some weightlift. And when you're on the seventh or eighth rep of maybe the second or third set, you're very close to finishing and your, your muscles are just kind of dying. And maybe you're listening to music though. You're listening to, I don't know, EDM or Drake or something. And it's trying to, you're trying to motivate yourself to just be, and you kind of say this to yourself in your head. You say, you know, be hardcore, just do it. Just kind of one more, you'll be done. One more, you'll feel good about yourself. Or maybe if you're a runner, you know, you're, you're looking at your Nike running app and you're almost there, but you really have a cramp or you're really running out of breath. You really want to throw up uh, and you decide to just push through that little extra bit. I think I try to do that uh, mentally all of the time, right? So that moment you get in the gym a couple times a week, try to do that with your brain power every day, every hour, every moment you feel yourself slipping. Once it's five or six o'clock, whenever you stop for the day and you eat dinner, try to have that breakthrough so that after dinner, you can push yourself to go back to it if you need to. I'm not advocating for not doing anything but work. But I think a lot of us don't achieve what we want because we don't work hard enough for it. And if we can take that semblance of hardcore, just do it, push through it, that a lot of us, a lot of us are able to pull off with physical endeavors, like at the gym or while running. If we can just warp that into our day-to-day, -day, you know, um, uh, knowledge worker mindset, then we, we get more done and we get the things that we want out of life. Um, but ultimately we're, we're able to be kind of strong willed in the gym and then weak minded in front of a computer. It's strange. And if we can adapt the mindset, um, everything kind of, in my opinion, comes to fruition. If you have to, to select or like to, to, to really, um, yeah, to summarize your, your personality, your, your character in one story, one event that made you who you are today, what would it be? <laughs> what a good one. What a good one. I've actually written about this. Is that okay? Absolutely. So a few years ago, we launched an incubator in Detroit. We decided that ideas are not useless. A lot of people say ideas are worthless. We think actually ideas are worth a ton. And execution also matters. These are not mutually exclusive. It's not that ideas are worthless, execution is everything. Idea and execution is everything combined. It's a composite record in your database. Um, so we decided to start an idea stage incubator, which is the antithesis of what anybody ever wants to fund. Nobody wants to fund, they want to fund traction. They want to fund a sure thing from consumers to VCs. We want a sure thing. And we're lying to ourselves when we evaluate things that don't feel like sure things. And so we started this idea stage incubator. We decided the best place to do it was Detroit 
which is uh, for anyone who is not an American um, might not know, it's kind of a shithole. <laughs> it used to be great. It used to be, you know, the auto capital of the world. Now they don't even have clean water apparently. And, you know, it's just not good. You can buy a house for a dollar. No joke. You can buy a house for a dollar as long as you promise to renovate it. So we do this incubator. We go out there, we get sponsors. We fly in 25, 30 people spending all of our personal money because we believed in it. And we wrap up the week. Everything goes really well. And we're flying back. Well, my team, we were trying to save money, right? It was a very expensive project. It was a very expensive experiment. So we all bought tickets on Spirit Airlines, which is also just the shittiest airline in America. They don't give you water. They don't even give you water. You have to pay for it. You know, you have to pay for each carry-on, not just checked bags, carry-ons. It's, it's kind of like hell in, in the air and you pay for it. And so we had booked all of our flights with Spirit and they canceled our flights home. And they said the next flight they could get us on, this was a Monday, the next flight they could get us on was that Friday, which meant we'd have to get hotels for seven or eight people for a week. We'd have to, you know, maybe pay extra fees for the flights. It was a no-go. It was a, we cannot do this. And we have to choose our own destiny because I'm a big believer in choosing your own destiny. No one else decides, it's up to you. And so what we did was we joined Hertz Gold Hertz is a car rental company. The gold program is free, at least for the first year. And once you're a gold member, you get all of these cool perks and benefits. So for free online on a smartphone, we joined Hertz Gold. We then called the Hertz Gold rental center at the Detroit airport. We rented a huge Tahoe SUV. We paid an extra maybe $20 for the ability to depart or you know, take the SUV back to a different airport than we got it from. And we drove straight to LaGuardia. So we drove straight to New York City. Starting Monday afternoon, we got home around 3 a.m. We drove east from Michigan through Pennsylvania, Ohio, et cetera. And while we did that, we wanted vengeance, right? We didn't want vengeance, I should say. We, should, we wanted justice. It wasn't good enough that we were actually all going to still be home that night in our beds. We wanted to do something a little bit. We wanted to make a point. And that's kind of half of why I exist. I exist to make a point. And the money just uh, you know, fuels the ability to make more points that are bigger and louder. And so we actually looked on Twitter and we saw that Spirit doesn't tweet. They have a Twitter account, but it says our Twitter is on autopilot because social media teams cost money. So just everything about this brand is wrong. So we <laughs> decided to make a handle at Spirit Cares and we started tweeting at everyone who is complaining about Spirit as if we were Spirit's customer service team. And um, after one or two tweets back and forth, we would just like curse at them. You know, so someone would say, you know, I lost my bag at Spirit. I hate you. And we would tweet and say, thanks, Sharon. All bags are donated to charity, right? And so we <laughs> tweeted hundreds of these troll tweets. This was in 2015 and hundreds of them. And people started getting it. They started laughing. And we were actually providing better customer service for Spirit than they ever have because actual customers who were actually upset were laughing and feeling relieved when they realized that this kind of fake account was brightening their day. The next morning we woke up, our account was suspended. <laughs> there is no more spirit cares, but it was this kind of project where we just, we made a point and I screenshotted some of our greatest hits. I wrote about it. It's now a case study called Spirit Cares. And it's about the importance of owning your brand because if you don't own your brand, someone else will. And so the, I think the key learnings from there about myself or about just the ethos I try to build is anti-authoritarian, choosing your own destiny, not taking no for an answer and getting whatever you want do if you're willing to do whatever it takes. It still feels like it's an amazing story, but it still feels like we could dig a bit deeper right now into <laughs> is there, you know, are your parents this way or are the, the, actual, the actual opposite of what you described? Where are you, where is it coming from? Do you know? Sure. Well, you know, I've always thought that the impact our parents make on us is equal. It, it's the same magnitude, right? Either you become just like your parents, you become the polar opposite, but their impact on you is the same number of, let's say, you know, if you could turn it into a measurable unit, it's the same number of points. And it's just which direction that impact goes. And for me growing up, there was no childhood drama. There was no trauma. There was no, nothing, not everything was fine. But I, I do think that in general, I was told enough times by friends or by authorities, by English teachers, right? misplaced commas or whatever, that you can't do it, you can't do it. And after you hear that enough times, you either agree with it, and that's, I think, a lot of people on the planet, unfortunately, or you explode and you set out to prove that idea wrong. 
And so I've been very thankful that that was kind of how my brain reacted to being told I couldn't do something hundreds of times was it exploded and it kind of lit on fire. And I'm still trying to fan the flame. One day I'm sure it will die. And, uh, and then I won't be able to go on podcasts and help people. But until then, I'm just kind of shipping. And um, yeah, as long as the high is there. But it didn't come from a specific yeah, individual. I don't, I've never had a mentor or an advisor. I've never had a CEO coach, although I've thought about it. Um, it kind of just came from the culmination of, of wanting to prove other people wrong, I think. And what I think is the good news about that is I don't think that's a unique story, right? I think most of us are told we can't do something. Um, we're told by other people who are insecure about what they're able to do and they're projecting on us. And so this is hopefully really relatable to a lot of us. Yeah, absolutely. I connect with what you said. I feel it's a bit the same. Um, so I, I ask three questions before uh, at the end of every podcast uh, episode. So the first one, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Empathy. Yeah. We're, we're spending too much time learning interfaces, learning how to use tools and not how to talk to humans. I think the hardest part of building a company is programming humans, right? It's easy to program a computer. It does the same thing. It always behaves. Um, it tells you exactly why something didn't work if your programming didn't work. Humans never tell you the bug. <laughs> and every human has their own bugs and every human speaks their own programming language. So empathy and consumer psychology is the number one thing I think a marketer should focus on today. And then all the tools, you know, whatever, you back into that. What are the top three resources you would recommend uh, our listeners to check out? It could be anything from books to podcasts to courses to anything. Certainly, I guess I have to pay pilgrimage to the marketing gods. So any book by Seth Godin, <laughs> specifically, uh, I can't even get specific because I just read all of them. Um, I think marketers should check out kind of all content to me. You know, Every, everything that's kind of leveled me up has been something that I've probably read or heard. You know, I, I can't really say every marketer should go to the the peaks of Mount Fiji or something. I, I don't know if there's really any benefit there if it's crossover. Everything that's kind of leveled me up has been content. Um, spoken, written, mostly written, and uh, and then creating content. So instead of saying like, what's that third thing I want you to absorb? My third recommendation there would be for you to create. Yeah, agree with that as well. When you start creating, you, you have less time to consume and it's a good thing because you become a creator and it, it changes the game. It changes the way you think, it changes a, a lot of things. Mm -hmm. um, So, and the final question, obviously, Ryan, I want to say, first off, thanks for being so open uh, with me. Thanks for going through this step-by-step -step with me and going a lot of details about your experience, your guts and how you do stuff. Uh, that was really enjoyable for me. And I think listeners really enjoyed it as well. Uh, so where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? Sure. So I love tweeting. Mostly they're not helpful jokes, but sometimes startup <laughs> ideas. That's just at Ryan C. Culp. And then I also like to blog at ryanc.com. All right, there we have it. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet. And we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five-star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir.
And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, came through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.